everybody. You are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller here with Dan Allen. Hello. And breaking the sound barriers, sound barriers of the of the recording as always. I just woke up Abel. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we are at chapter 13 in our series on Revelation, accompanying our sermon series through Revelation. Yeah, so Dan, mm-hmm. maybe uh, situate us yeah. here. Yeah, because yeah, you, you preached this passage, uh, 13, 1 to 10 on the first piece. So I'll just kind of try to give you some softball questions. Sounds Everything good. comes back to softball. Everything comes back. To, yeah, Dan is obsessed with softball. <laughs> um, all right. So, if, actually, first of all, um, before we even like read the section, yeah. Um, but just tell us a little bit. Get us situated and what's going on. What, where did we just come out of, and how is this going to kind of guide us into a, a new uh, image here, a new kind of vision, or the yeah. first vision that John sees in the section? So, there are like kind of two layers. The biggest layer, the big stepping back like really big picture is that we're in a new section from, from chapter 11, 19, mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. chapter 12 mm-hmm. to 15 verse four. And in the book so far, we've gone through the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments. You kind of have these big sequences mm-hmm. that kind of go over the same mm-hmm. kind of course of the mm-hmm. church age leading up to the second coming of Christ. And now, now we're in another one of those. And each of them have seven. So it's seven seals, seven trumpets. Yep. And yep. this one is seven visions. Yep. And I saw the phrase, and I saw repeated seven times. Mm-hmm. And so we're in, whereas those, like the seals and the trumpets, they kind of overview God's judgments and his purposes from a big picture lens. Here we're kind of focusing in now on the characters of that drama, the characters mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. this sort of cosmic conflict. And so again, we're sequencing mm-hmm. from chapter 12, which has to do, it starts off with the ascension. The baby born from the woman who is who ascends up to uh, heaven and his throne, Jesus being enthroned, ascended, and an ending with the end of chapter 14 into 15 with the great harvest of God gathering his people and the judgment of the wine presses. Mm-hmm. So ending with the second coming. So in 13, we're kind of in between. We're in the church mm-hmm. age. We're in between the ascension and the second coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and in chapter 12, now if we kind of go back on a smaller scale, yeah. chapter 12, we got our first character. So this is a, mm-hmm. this is, Chapter 12 through through 15 here is giving us a different characters, as we said. Mm-hmm. In chapter 12, we have a profile of the dragon. And the dragon is said to be that ancient serpent, um, Satan. And mm-hmm. so we see Satan as this primary opponent to God and his purposes. Mm-hmm. And then when we come to verse... Which, if I could just go add ahead. in there. Um, here, because many people see a, a big shift in the book, right at 11, 19 or 12, 1, depending on where you want to put that break. Um because you kind of have the uh, seal judgments and the trumpet judgments as kind of uh, God himself or or uh, the lamb kind of ushering in the, the decrees of God for uh, the direction and destiny of history, right? He's the one in control doing this. And now in 12, you sort of have from a different angle, it's like, well, this is, this is Satan's attempts at him carrying out the destiny of the world. Yeah. So you kind of have this major shift of he becomes the focus in chapter 12 of his plans. Now, obviously, he keeps getting defeated, as we saw last week. But you kind of have this different shift of like, yeah. now look at how Satan tries tries to um, bring about history, his own path. Yeah. And so we can see that a little bit like at the very end of chapter 12 in verse 17, mm-hmm. after the dragon has been thwarted, 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 like he keeps attacking and it's yep. not working. It says this, it says, then the dragon uh, became furious with the woman, which represents the, the people of God, mm-hmm. and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, the believers, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so we see 
even at the end, mm-hmm. he's been trying to wage his war. Mm-hmm. He's been thwarted, but now he's furious and he's going to mm-hmm. keep. He's going to keep waging that war, yeah, almost and, stronger. Yeah, like he, he becomes furious. Yeah, he's furious a, now. There's this game that my brother and I used to play in an arcade growing up. We had to like it's kind of like whack a mole, but you yeah, had to yeah. whack these little alligator heads mm-hmm. that came out. And arcade that one game, an arcade game. Okay, yeah. yeah. Back in the day when you had like arcades, right? Yeah, and um. And at one point, if you if you got to a certain level, the alligator would go, now I'm angry. Yeah, yeah, and then all the alligator yeah, yeah. heads would go even yeah. faster. It was like this. It's like, now I'm angry. I'm going to come out with fury. And mm-hmm. it says he stood on the sand of the sea. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where we, we leave off is yeah. the dragons, the Satan figure on the sand of the sea, yeah. which leads right into yeah. verse chapter chapter 13, 13 yeah. verse 1, yeah. so where s- the beast rises out of the yeah. sea. So you sort of have this question in the air, in your mind as you're reading it, is like, what we would hope to read is that Satan kind of, he's like, he gives up. He's like, yep. okay, man, oh, I just keep losing. Work. But in, instead, it, it infuriates him. Mm-hmm. And now he's like really mad. I mean, he's just boiling. Yeah. And he's furious. He's going to make war. And then the question in the mind is, well, how? what's he going to do next? Like, what? what how is his war going to unfold yeah. against the church? Because it says he's going to keep attacking. So you're like, okay, yep. well, how's that going to go? Yes. Yeah. And, and so, so then it, that leads us into 13. And you already said it. This He's standing on the, the sand of the sea. And then out of the sea comes this beast. Yeah. So the idea, there's like an implication, like the beast is sort of the spawn of this, yeah. of this dragon. It's, it's the new, it, this is how he's going to wage his war. And so you get, you get two beasts in chapter 13. Mm-hmm. We've, we're going to deal with the first one today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of like thing one and thing two. It's a dynamic right, duo right. of the two beasts that the dragon is going to utilize to wage his war. Yeah. Um, what's interesting too, I'll just go back to chapter 11, seven. When we were in the trumpet judgments, in the there's as you remember in the seal and the trumpet judgments, we kind of get these excursuses. We get this zoom in moment mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. the six and the seven on the church. Mm-hmm. Well, in 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 the trumpet judgment, the zoom in moment on the church in chapter ten and eleven, it mentions with the two witnesses that represent the church. Um, it says when those two witnesses have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. So here it's rising not from the sea but the bottomless mm-hmm. pit, a mm-hmm. parallel image. It's going to make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Mm-hmm. And so in chapter 11, it just it mentions this beast. Mm-hmm. So if you're reading the book for the first time, you're, you don't you haven't like we, we're familiar right. with this yeah. beast language. It's kind of gets spoken of in, you know, people's kind of end time speculations mm-hmm. and conversations. Mm-hmm. But like if you're thinking about reading this for the first time, all of a sudden it mentions the beast. You're like. Well, what's that? Right. Like this beast kills the two witnesses. Yeah. What's that all about? And John's not ready to tell you quite yet. Right. He's in just kind of. And John just, does this. That's it. He, he just moves he, on. In chapter fourteen, he's just going to briefly mm-hmm. mention Babylon, but mm-hmm. he's not going to tell us what that right. is. He's going to pick it up in seventeen. Yeah. And so this is a thing that he does throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, he'll just kind of like drop a breadcrumb mm-hmm. and be like, "Hey, there's this thing. Mm-hmm. Just wait. I'm going to unpack it a little bit more later on." And what's interesting is we get the exact same language of the beast making war. Um, right. In verse 8, or no, in verse 7, it says, Also it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The exact same language. So in 13 here, in other words, what we're getting is we're getting an expanded description, an expanded profile Mm -hmm. of that little phrase in chapter 11. Mm -hmm. He's going to take that little phrase... And he's going to blow it up into a full-on description. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one element of what's happening mm-hmm. here. But the other piece, is which that you we'll, also have the time references in chapter eleven as well. So exactly. Like really, yeah. So the time references yeah. being this three and a half year, yeah. this three and a half year time period that gets mm-hmm. 
used throughout the book. Yeah, and it gets um, re-mentioned in your section that you're talking about, 13.5. Yep, the it, it's months. mentioned in chapter 11, 11 chapter 12, 12, and chapter 13, 13 yeah. where the, the temple, the two witnesses, the dragon, and the people he's attacking, and the mm-hmm. beast, and, and his time yeah. of authority are all said to be a three-and-a-half-year period. Yeah. So it's all talking about the church yeah. age. Which, again, as we've said before, kind of is this picture of a time of suffering that leads to triumph. Mm-hmm. And all the references you mentioned is referring to this kind of the, exactly that. The, yep. The persecution of the church. Yep. And this is alluding to Daniel where Daniel is picking up on this time times and half a time period. That was a time where mm-hmm. this, an antichrist type figure would persecute the saints yep. leading ultimately to the victory of God mm-hmm. and the kingdom being established. And John is saying that's what's happening here with the two witnesses, mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. dragon persecuting the woman and her offspring and with the beast persecuting the saints. Mm-hmm. And so, Big picture here, again, just to recap, mm-hmm. this is an expanded profile on the beast that was briefly mentioned in chapter 11. Mm-hmm. And then in light of chapter 12, we're supposed to understand that these two beasts are really the the, the thing one and thing two, kind of mm-hmm. like Dr. Seuss. I think of Dr. Seuss's cat in the hat where you unleash thing one and thing two mm-hmm. and they make a mess of the house. The dragon is the cat in the hat here, mm-hmm. unleashing thing one and mm-hmm. thing two into the world to wreak havoc. And mm-hmm. so really understanding chapter 13 of the beast in light of 12 you might think of it kind of parallel, and you kind of alluded to this already. But if you remember in chapter four, you have a picture of the one seated on the throne, God mm-hmm. himself, who eventually gives the scroll to the lamb in chapter five, where the where Jesus Christ is exercising the very sovereignty mm-hmm. and authority and kingship of God the Father. Mm-hmm. And that is carried out in the seal judgments, for example. Here we get a parallel, a parody, so to say, where, where Satan, the, the, the one who opposes God, gives his authority to an antichrist figure, mm-hmm. a parody of Christ, a parody king and ruler, the beast. Mm-hmm. And so you have a parallel thing going on here where we see the one seated on the throne who gives, it, gives his authority to the lamb. Here we have the dragon who gives his authority to the beast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so let's stay on the high level just for a short moment too. Yeah. Um, cause as, so that's kind of chapter 12, the dragon. And then we have the two beasts in chapter 13, carrying out the plan of the dragon to make war on the saints. Yep. Um, talk to us a little bit how this then fits into the remainder of this section from 14 1 to 15 4. So, I, where, do, where do we end up? How this goes? Yeah. So, eventually, so we're going to have another beast that shows up. Uh, who's later identified as a false prophet. And this really, mm-hmm. um, this kind of creates what we might call an unholy trinity. You have, mm-hmm. just as you have father, son, and spirit, you have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, the second mm-hmm. beast. Um, and eventually we'll have a harlot who's kind of contrasting the bride. Mm-hmm. So you have two contrasting peoples of God, the mm-hmm. harlot and the bride, or Babylon and New Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so all these characters are sort of, as they're introduced in the book, you got a par- you have parodies and counterfeits going on. Which people are you a part of? Which God do you worship? Mm-hmm. Do you worship the beast or do you worship the lamb? Mm-hmm. Do you follow the beast or do you follow the lamb? Are you part of Babylon? Or are you part of the New Jerusalem? And in the same order that these characters are introduced mm-hmm. in the book, mm-hmm. they're going to be destroyed in the exact reverse order as the book unfolds. Yeah. So that's something we're going to see throughout the entire book. In this particular section, once we leave 13, we're eventually going to see that there's Instead of the people who are marked by the beast, we're going to see the people who are sealed by the lamb mm-hmm. and, and God's judgment and his justice is going to come in full 
Um, he's going to gather his people depicted as a great harvest, and he's going to judge mm-hmm. the world depicted as the wine press of mm-hmm. his wrath, which is going to eventually lead into the song of chapter 15. We're at the climax of the ages when everything, when God's kingdom comes fully about, we see the people praising God as each of these sections in the book sort of has this way of closing with a song. Mm-hmm. Just as people worshiped the beast and said, who is like the beast at the end with chapter 15, we'll see a song where people say that no one is like God, mm-hmm. sort of the, the authentic worship contrasting the counterfeit worship of the beast. No one is like God. Mm-hmm. The beast is a counterfeit. Mm-hmm. Would you yeah. add anything to yeah. that? No, I'm just going to just say a couple things just to make sure every, all that's clear. I think that's all, all good. So we actually find four characters that rage war against, uh, wage war against the, the saints, the dragon. Uh, who then is kind of the, the chief among them that uses these other three other characters, yep. being the f- beast number one, beast number two. A.K.A. false prophet. Yep. And then beast number three, or not beast, but uh, Babylon, which we're, she's called first in chapter 14. But then in 17, it actually defines her as the prostitute or the har- the, harlot. the harlot. So th- yep. those are the same. It's the same harlot, character. Yeah, harlot and Babylon are the same, just yeah. like bride and New Jerusalem Correct. are the same. Correct, yep. But then, when we move farther in the book, in seventeen, they all go they all go down in reverse order that mm-hmm. they were introduced. So then, the harlot will go down first, then beast number two or the false prophet, uh, and then beast number one, and then the dragon goes down. Yep. Yep. At the very um, end. Yep. <clears throat> then, what we see in thirteen is that the the way Satan wages war against the saints. Uh, we're going as we get into this then uh, through opposition through, you know, actually killing some of them. Coercion, power. Also like this economic thing that we see at the end of chapter 13. Yep. Uh, the saints, no one, unless you have the mark of the beast, you can't buy anything. Mm-hmm. But then right when we get into 14, we see 144,000, which we've already seen, who uh, no one can learn the song uh, that they're learning in glory in, yeah. unless they're marked uh, by by the lamb. Yeah, that's uh, in the first redeemed. the first five verses of 14. So you have this yeah. contrast between like right. no, one can, no one can buy or sell, but okay, big deal. No one can learn the song yeah. of the redeemed, the ones who actually worship God, who yeah. redeemed them, yeah. um, who don't have this, who don't have the seal of Christ. Yeah. So, so it's, it's yeah. sort of like you'll either you either get one or the other. You get you one can either buy in this life, yeah, but then you won't learn the song in glory, yeah. or you won't be able to buy in this life and you'll you'll get the song in glory. And that's the yeah. contrast between who are you marked by? Are you marked by the yeah. beast? Are you identified with him? Or are you sealed by Jesus? Yeah. Good. Okay. So that kind of orients orient us, kind of. Bigger picture then. And let me throw um, let me throw one other thing in there just to help make that clear too. Each when we talk about these unholy trinity and these sort of parodies, yeah. each of these represents a different threat to the church. Right, yeah, yeah. So when you yep. think about the seven how we opened up with the messages to the seven churches, mm-hmm. each of them were dealing with different struggles. Some of them needed to be encouraged mm-hmm. amidst persecution to keep pressing. Mm-hmm. Some of them were capitulating to bad ideas and false teaching mm-hmm. and ideology. Others were going after the lust of the world or sexual immorality. Right, right. And each of these three figures that the dragon uses the first beast the false prophet or Mm -hmm. second beast and then the harlot or babylon they represent those different threats the first beast represents coercion and power sort of the Mm -hmm. systemic oppression Mm -hmm. you have the second beast what we would think of like physical persecution physical persecution yeah so like powers in this world that can coerce so that would be the church of smyrna in Philadelphia, we're actually undergoing that. Yep. And they were being faithful. So this is typically (laughs) the threat for those who are faithful Mm -hmm. is they're going to be, you're going to have physical harm against them or economic oppression. And then you have some who are falling prey to ideologies, like the Mm -hmm. false prophet or second beast is the one who promotes the worship of the first beast. So this is like false teaching. This would probably be the the imperial cult. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then the last one would be the would be Babylon or the harlot who yeah. represents like lusts, lust like, the in, world, yeah. like an economic system. Yeah. And, like and Laodicea. Like yeah. Uh, yeah. Or uh, Laodicea. Laodicea, however you say that. But yeah, so each of the churches yeah. and like as the book opened, this I mean, it's just amazing how the book all fits together, mm-hmm. right? As mm-hmm. the book opened, where it kind of went through the seven churches, mm-hmm. that was meant to prepare them for the war mm-hmm. of chapters four through the end. Mm-hmm. Like you got to get to the promise at the end. To everyone who conquers, you're going to receive mm-hmm. chapter 21 and 22, the new creation, the new Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But you got to get through that war. You got to persevere mm-hmm. through that war. And here are the four threats, the dragon, the beast, the second beast, yeah. and the harlot. Yeah, and I think this point is really, really helpful for understanding kind of what's going on in this section. I, I can't remember if it was Hendrickson or is it Hendricks or what? Hendrickson is Hendrickson, a common, yeah. I don't. I can't remember if that's where I first heard it. I can't remember wherever I first heard it. Um, it's kind of a, a simple commentary. It's not very long, but it's just like once you see that, and you're like, oh, this makes sense of this whole section, as well as how each each of these characters have a, a unique kind of way that they, they have a lane yeah the they have a lane yeah. they're playing and then how it connects back to the churches i feel like then it all starts to gel together and go wow yeah like yeah. this is it's very beautiful at that point like yeah. in the in the sense of the the literary features yeah of what he's, what he's i'm doing. All, i'm like increasingly amazed at how sophisticated well on right, one yeah. level how simple the book is yeah but how sophisticated and mm-hmm. interconnected it is yeah like my goodness this book is incredibly yeah. like just like, yeah, it's an amazing, it's a mass, it's yeah. a literary masterpiece. Yeah. And if, so if I could say one more thing then with this, because um, <clears throat> remember one, I think it's one nine, where John says he's in the tribulation. Yeah. Right? He says he's in the tribulation. The church is in, in the tribulation. Uh, and early on, we said we, we, we don't think this is only referring to physical persecution, but just the, the hard pilgrimage it is in this, in this world, yeah. right? As we're on pilgrimage to the celestial city, because Satan is waging war against the church. And then we see, well, how is he waging war? Well, there's these three kind of main topics through um, physical persecution, um, through ideologies, trying to mm-hmm. deceive uh, people into believing false things, uh, or through just general like pleasure of the world. Yep. Right. And so uh, I just find that that's sort of like you go. Yeah, I experienced that. Like, yeah, that's real. Yeah. And it, that's it infuses, what John's talking about. It infuses like our Christian life with a like. It shows this, what's at stake too. Yeah. Because in all of these, like, so remember, Revelation is the apocalyptic literature is meant to unveil these things. Yeah. It's kind of exposing things as they really are. Mm-hmm. You're not going to look at the economic system of Rome in that day and be like, oh, that's a harlot. You know. Right. right. There's, there's probably parts of you that'd be like, oh, that's that's not bad. That's yeah. good. That brings prosperity. You kind mm-hmm. of justify it. You right. rationalize right. it. The same thing with the beast and the ideologies. You can kind of rationalize it. And we can do the same thing today. We can kind of grow accustomed to the the world we live in, not see things as bad, like so bad, kind of like we can find ourselves compromising with it. Mm-hmm. And the book of Revelation wants to just like shine a light on it and mm-hmm. be like, look at this is what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. And there is a war that like the dragon is waging war for your soul mm-hmm. and you need to be on guard and you need to look at the world with that sort of apocalyptic outlook yeah. that sees things for the battle that they mm-hmm. really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. good. All right. So that that's good. So that's the theological, you know, kind of a big picture rounding of yeah. this big picture. And now John's going to communicate that through these images, through these yep. visions, the first vision, uh, giving us the first character being this beast. Number one that comes out of the sea. And I guess the last big picture thing, cause I know you want to talk a little bit about the sea, but the second beast comes out of the earth. Yep. As we see in verse 11, one coming out of the sea, one coming out of the earth, like 
Uh, let me let me just read verses one and two, so we yeah, see them yeah. uh, of chapter thirteen. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard; its feet was were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Yeah. All right. So talk to us a little bit about the sea. Why the sea? Why is it coming out of the sea? Why is one coming out of the earth? What are we supposed to make of that? Does it matter? Yeah. So a couple thoughts. One, as we saw in 11, the beast comes out of the abyss. So Mm -hmm. again, we're dealing with symbolism and the symbolism can kind of be depicted in different ways. The abyss, as we saw like in the trumpet judgments, that's where like these demonic locusts come out. It's it's this place where nothing good is coming out of the abyss. You open up the abyss, you're not going to find a teddy bear. Okay. Like this is a bad place, right? Um, but also the the sea, in, especially in the Old Testament imagery in the Hebrew mind, would have represented this kind of place of a chaotic region uh, from which threats and rebellion arise. And so they would have saw like the sea as a source of these satan- satanic monsters and mm-hmm, such. And mm-hmm. so that's part of the image. You might think of the sea as like a storehouse of evil. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but also, as we saw, linking it with chapter 12, where the dragon is standing on, on the, the, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. sea, it shows yeah. that the, this monster, this beast, yeah. is related to right, the right. dragon. Yeah. The sea and the earth together, I think, um, it probably shows that the two beasts combine, one rising out of the sea, one out of the earth. It shows they have like a universal influence or right. sway yeah. over the entire earth. It shows their, yeah, just their yeah. ability to influence all of humankind. Yeah. Like we even see in the passage... That the all tribes, peoples, language, and nations right. worship the beast. Yeah, yeah. So, so in other words, like the sea, the earth, and the sea, uh, kind of representing a little bit like the four corners of the earth that we saw. Yeah, yeah. Um, with the or world. like the angel yeah. in chapter ten who has a who stands on the sea and the land yeah. together. Yeah, so it's kind of this global. Yeah, uh, and I, I'm glad you pointed out this. Even even beast number one uh, is has authority uh, to conquer uh, in verse. What's that? Verse seven. Um, over every tribe and people and language and nation. So just because you, you, this is where you don't want to just like, well, no, he's only in the sea. So only the, yeah, the yeah, yeah, sea yeah. merchants or, and you know, only yeah. those people on boats like are affected. This, right. Well, no, now we're taking the, like, like one have, beast is the beast that oversees the sea yeah. and the other went, no, that's not yeah. really the point. It comes right. out of the sea. What does the sea represent? Yes. Yeah. yeah good. And um, then the last thing would be potentially is this idea of the sea is that it's, well, we see, for example, in chapter 17 that the harlot's, the the prostitute's seat is said to be on the sea's waters, mm-hmm. which is described then or interpreted for us as peoples, right. multitudes, nations, mm-hmm. and tongues. So it could be that the sea actually represents peoples in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, or in chapter 20, at the end of the millennium passage, where there's a great battle at the end, it says that the army that's arrayed is like the sand of the seashore. So here, if if that is a if though if we're supposed to make those connections, the sea would also then possibly communicate the the beast's authority over yeah, many yeah. peoples. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe not. But. Yeah, yeah. Um, we also see in in the just this section that we we read so far, kind of the the a little bit of the picture what it looks like. Now, uh, obviously, it's going to go on, but just deal with that first. Um, Anything you would want to say about it? You know, it's like part leopard, it's part bear, like part, what else is it? Lion's mouth. Lion. So obviously we take this, you got to take things very literally, right? Right. It's a beast with a literal lion's mouth and and bears. No, of course. Because that's not possible, is it? I don't know what that would, I mean, (laughs) people try to like draw these things and I'm just like, I don't like, (laughs) 
it's meant to be crazy, right? Yeah. So like, so in one, so this is alluding, alluding to Daniel seven and Daniel, yeah. the book of Daniel is really, it's like, it's massively about God, like kingdoms and God's sovereignty mm-hmm. over all kingdoms. Like you think about God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar in that book where he shows Nebuchadnezzar, I am the one who's in charge, not yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And so the visions in, in Daniel also depict the same sort of thing. God is the one who's in charge. And we see the vision of these different monsters in chapter seven. Mm-hmm. One is a, a lion. Another one's like a leopard. Another mm-hmm. one's like a bear. And these represent yeah. Babylon. Medo-Persia, Greece, and then there's a fourth beast that represents Rome. And so what John is doing here in this vision Mm -hmm. is it's sort of taking all of those beasts and combining them together. So on the one hand, it's the fourth beast. It Mm -hmm. is Rome, Mm -hmm. but it's also a whole lot bigger. It's It's more. It's like the the super super monster. monster. Um, Isn't that, this would be, this was sort of, I guess it was that during my time, the beginning part, I just didn't watch it. Maybe it was during your time, like Transformers. Isn't there one like, isn't it called like Megatron or something that's actually... Oh, uh, that's... Uh, Dan and I are obviously not very good at pop culture. That but do you is know what I'm trans- talking about? Yeah, yeah no, that yeah. is Transformers. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, but I think, isn't the guy's name Megatron? Megatron or There's something? a Megatron It's basically there, like uh... a group of the Transformers. Like on their own, they're, they have their powers or whatever. But then they come together and they make this giant... Maybe... I'm not sure if that's right, but it sounds good. It sounds good. I know <laughs> well, that should be. I know that they called they called Calvin Johnson from the Lions a wide receiver Megatron. All so, right, <laughs> I didn't know that. I don't know about the Transformers movie. I think that the Transformer was actually just called Megatron. Is it tr- there's like one called like Brian or I think there's like one that was called Bumblebee or something. Megatron. There is Megatron. <laughs> Who's uh eighty four? So I, I would you, have been bet, six. Yeah. Who's someone in our church that likes superheroes? I feel like Sam likes superheroes. Yeah, we got to get him over know. here. Yeah, we need to. Anyway, so you get this super monster, and remember these beasts are men. They represent kingdoms, then, and so John is talking about a kingdom here. And again, there's another. There's other parallels with Daniel and Daniel seven. Um, the final beast with its head speaks arrogant boasts and blasphemies, just like the beast in chapter 13 here does, who is speaking haughty words and blasphemies. The, this final beast um, in its head wage war against the saints, which is exactly what's happening here as well. Again, in the three and a half year period, that beast in Daniel is waging war against the saints, leading into then the climax of, of the Messiah's kingdom taking over. That's exactly what's happening here. John is taking that passage from Daniel and he's applying it to his age and the church underneath Rome. Daniel is, or Dan, I called you Daniel. <laughs> well, your name is Daniel. No. Uh, Dan is doing research on Transformers. <laughs> I, I feel like he wants to inform yeah. us what's happening. Well, I- no, I don't have anything. Okay. So anyways, um, in another sense then, so the, the monster is, the monster that John sees is first century Rome, but it's also more than first century Rome. It's bigger than that. It's merging of all the, the imagery of all these different kingdoms. And so we see that um, on the one hand, the monster that, that John is talking about, its first mm-hmm. sort of fulfillment, its first expression mm-hmm. would have been first century mm-hmm. Rome. Yeah. I like I like the, I mean, fulfillment's fine, yeah. but I feel like that... It's. I like the the idea of expression. Yeah, like the first expression. Yeah, it's, it's first, just like it's first just iteration. When you hear that you, you, first, you hear like, oh, there's going to be multiple expressions. Yeah, like it's first uh, referent or iteration yeah. or yeah, expression. Yeah. And we know this. Like, where are we getting this from? Because someone say, well, no, it should just be the first century Rome, yeah, and that's it. It's just one. Yeah. I would argue that it is meant to be seen as something bigger than first century Rome, something mm-hmm. that continues across the entire church age. And I would argue that from one, we're talking about. The fact that it is ruling for forty-two months. Mm-hmm. This is a, that's the three and a half years mm-hmm. that's symbolic for the entire church age. We also see that we are in the section between 
the ascension in chapter 12 and the second coming in chapter 14 and 15. Mm -hmm. So in Mm -hmm. 13, we're dealing with the section that is the church age. We're between the Mm -hmm. ascension and the second Mm -hmm. coming. Um, The other thing is its origin, as we saw, is from the dragon. It's from Satan. And so it shows that the activity of the beast is going to is going to correspond exactly to the same period that the dragon is waging war against mm-hmm. the church. The mm-hmm. dragon didn't Satan didn't just wage his war in the first century. He's doing it across the church age. Yeah. And so the beast is waging his war across the church age as well. And just as Christ's rule spans the entire church age, so the activities of this parody Christ, this mm-hmm. antichrist, mm-hmm. this false Christ, his his quote unquote ministry is going to span the entire mm-hmm. church age as well. And so those would be reasons why we see this as something bigger than just first century Rome. Yeah. It's, it's it's that's sort of the context, the original context, but it's bigger mm-hmm. than that. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I, I think also going back to our earlier discussion too, just if you, if you step back and like approach it apocaly- apocalyptically and see, try to understand that these images are painting the different ways that Satan tries to wage war. It just like you start not, asking as many questions about who is the beast like who what person is the beast and you just like go well no like this is that happens all all across the church age so it's right um which we talked about last time like once you kind of keep that that approach to reading it a lot of the questions that you we tend to ask like start to fade away like you don't even ask not, those questions yeah you're not asking yeah. because and like, oh, go, go ahead finish your, your thought no because then you i think you said this in the sermon you would you would just say like who who is the beast well you say well, it, it, it's first century Rome. It, it's it's Hitler. It's this person. It's that person. It's, that, it's like it's not just a thing. It's just yeah. it's a load of things. Yeah, and it could have one final expression. Like there sure, could be one old yeah. one. Yeah. Um, I think we'll be in, as we will eventually get to chapter seventeen and study that and kind of see as we work through more of the details. But yeah. it, it clearly is like these iterations across church yeah. history. Some yeah. thinking about some of the details that people stress. One of the details that I think you'll hear people in sort of these end time discussions. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll hear this language of people anticipating a one world government mm-hmm. and there's going to be this mm-hmm. devious one world government that eventually takes over. Mm-hmm. And for a while I was like, where in the world are people getting this from? Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I'm like reading my Bible and I'm like, what, mm-hmm. where are people getting this from? Yeah. Well, I asked someone who I know holds to that theology and he pointed me to chapter 13 okay. where it says that the beast has authority over all sure. tribes, yeah. people's yeah. languages and nations. And yeah. again, that's in my opinion, that's pressing, pressing it way too hard. Well, on the one hand, it's pressing the details much, much, much more intensely than yep. they should be. On the one hand, that would fit Rome because mm-hmm. Rome had authority. The Roman Empire had authority over the entire known world at that time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, remember, we're, this is – we're talking about sort of a vision that's kind of exploded in these hyperbolic terms for the express purpose that its meaning would actually go beyond Rome mm-hmm. to governments across church history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, this is part of the symbolism. Um, so, yeah. 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 That's good. All right. Let's, let's move on to the next. Uh, let's maybe read, if you want to read verses three and four, just, we're going to get some more description about this, this first beast. So yeah, let's actually start in the second half of verse two to kind of see the structure. And so what we have in the next two sections, um, we've kind of looked at the introduction to the beast, which is the first one and a half verses, one through two A. In the next two sections, we get the beast's description and then the beast's activity, the beast mm-hmm. descriptions and the beast activity. And I'm actually going to put, I'm going to put a, a picture, a di- diagram of this structure um, on my blog where we're hosting the podcast. So if you want to check that out to kind of visualize it, you can. 
But in the beast description here, 2b to verse 4, again, we get this, we get a structure that kind of goes like a, b, a, b. Mm-hmm. One characteristic followed by a second. And then again, the first characteristic followed by the second again. And so the first characteristic we get is that the beast is authorized by the dragon. And then the second characteristic is that the beast is seemingly invincible. So let me read that and kind of show you um, how that works. So first it's, and to it, the beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So the beast is authorized. It's given authority. And then B um, in verse three, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And so here we see that the authority manifests itself such that the beast is seemingly invincible. It heals from this mortal wound. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we have a quick summary. We go, we go A, B again. We return to those two themes again in verse four. And they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. So there again, we see the beast is authorized. And then we come back to the invincibility of the beast in the second half of verse four. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Presumably you can't fight against it because it heals from mortal wounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we get this repetition between two two themes then. The beast mm-hmm. is authorized by the dragon and it's seemingly invincible as mm-hmm. it is healed from a mortal mm-hmm. wound. So that's that's Sorry. a description of the sipping beast. Caught Dan in the middle of sipping a coffee. So that's yeah. a description of the beast. Yeah. Which we also didn't we didn't talk about how the fact that um this beast has ten horns and seven heads, uh just like the dragon does. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's the same picture. It's showing kind of like the, the spawn of Satan. I yeah. Guess. So the like dragon has ten heads and seven, yeah. ten horns and seven heads, yeah. just like the beast. It kind of shows the satanic influence that stands yeah. behind the beast. What do you think about this mortal wound that seems to have healed, or uh, no, what's it? Uh, seemed to have a mortal wound. Yeah. But its mortal wound was healed. What is, what is that trying to? I I know you're arguing for. Um, he seems like he's invincible. Yeah. What are the options that people give for that? Yeah. Well, literally, it, as I mentioned in the sermon, it literally leads that he had a more. It was a. It was a. It was as slain is what mm-hmm. it is. It's the exact same language that was used in chapter five to speak of the lamb mm-hmm. who was seen as slain. And this mm-hmm. is a language. This is language in Revelation. This as word mm-hmm. gets used to show like how how John saw it. I saw it mm-hmm. as this. I mm-hmm. saw the lamb as if he had been slain. I saw mm-hmm. the beast. Same exact language as if it had a mortal wound. And so yeah. it's on the one hand, what's really obvious is that this is meant to be a parody of Jesus. Mm-hmm. The beast mm-hmm. is sort of doing his own counterpart of, of Jesus's invincibility and his resurrection, mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. death and resurrection. There like is, how he can die and rise again. I, I can do something. Yeah. So I the beast the is sort thing. of trying to mimic that. Yeah. Um, in other words, if we're understanding this to be primarily referring to like an example of the beast being the state, it's the state sort of claim to be like, look at our, we have all this power. We're invincible. Mm-hmm. All of our human, you know, if we reject the rule of God, we reject mm-hmm. worshiping God, that we tend we tend to do that because we want to worship mm-hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the government in, in a state is sort of the prime example of our collective human power. It's mm-hmm. a way of us worshiping ourselves mm-hmm. by saying, look at the power we have. Kind yeah. of like a uh, Genesis 10 at the Tower of Babel. Look, mm-hmm. we can make a name for ourselves. And every, t- every time it seems like it's about to go down, it, it sort of lives on. Yeah, a I new do. empire rises. One yeah. empire falls. And so that's it. The idea here is... Um, some of the background that some people allude to, which I think is possible, uh, it's not necessary. Like it could be in the passage, 
the meaning of the passage stays the same, even if this is not the actual background, is some people would point out to the fact that this may be referring to Nero. So Nero, um, as history shows us, he killed himself when mm-hmm. there was kind of some people coming for him. He wasn't the best emperor. Mm-hmm. So he kills himself with a dagger. Later in the next section, it's going to talk about how the beast um, was killed with a sword. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and the, the Roman Empire went through just some chaotic time after that. There were three empires that were only around for like a very brief time. Everyone was kind of trying to claim power. Mm-hmm. And eventually uh, Vespasian took over and solidified the empire mm-hmm. again. And so there's this kind of, if he's alluding to that, which he very well may be, mm-hmm. kind of like what it would have looked like, what this symbolism would have meant f- um, in their immediate context, of mm-hmm. course, it kind of has different expressions across history, but what it meant in their context could have been like, look at the Roman Empire is essentially invincible. Even when one of the key emperors goes down and things seem like it's going to fall apart, mm-hmm. it still ends up surviving. Like, that's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, too, is I didn't get into this too much in the sermon, but you'll notice in the initial section here, it talks about how one of the heads seem to have a mortal wound. We know mm-hmm. that the heads, the seven heads in chapter 17, mm-hmm. it's going to tell us that the heads represent the kings, mm-hmm. just like the horns represent the kings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, you could say that the idea here is that one of the heads, that is one of the emperors, one mm-hmm. of the kings was killed, but the beast. Mm-hmm. So later it will talk about how the beast was healed. Mm-hmm. So even though one of the kings died, the beast, the empire still mm-hmm. lived on. Mm-hmm. And so that would kind of promote that idea. Yeah. Um, even when one of the kings dies, the empire itself still can still yeah. go on. Let me throw out an idea. See if anybody kind of talked about like yeah. this idea. So thinking about it from kind of like as John's trying to help the church understand what's going on in the world. Yeah. It's sort of this idea of like, look, the state at those those high levels, there's corruption. And some of you are experiencing it on a very real deep level. They're just, they're coming after you. Um, and we know what this is like. Even, even if it's like the empire changes and there's a good king that gets put up there for a second like what ha- like almost as if the beats is now like we finally killed the corruption we destroyed this beast and we have like now like a good empire what yeah. happens it's going to be back like the next generation it's like you cannot stop the corruption of the state because people love power and they they love to corrupt or power corrupts people and there it's always going to be this way it's, yeah. it's sort of this idea of it doesn't matter who's in power uh, what kingdom takes over is just going to continue to live on, even when it seems like you finally slayed that cor- that corrupt power um, institutions. They rise back up again to corrupt or to oppress people. Yeah, I didn't see anyone suggest no. that. Um, not that I disagree with the idea of it. What, what's interesting is it does talk. It the main focus, though, regardless, is that you have so you have the beast depicted as in, in chapter seventeen will unfold this for us, right? It will tell us what this symbolism means mm-hmm. explicitly. You have seven heads, which are seven kings. The ten horns are ten other kings that sort of like mm-hmm. conspire with uh, one of the heads in chapter yep. 17. So they, regardless, you have like you have kings happening here. Mm-hmm. And even as something is slain, like you're saying, maybe it's the idea of like you kind of slay a corruption, slay mm-hmm. some aspect of corruption, and it brings – and then – you know, oh no, the corruption came back. The only thing that would push against that idea, mm-hmm. though, is that they're worshiping it. Like they like that it came back. The people are being like, "Oh, it lived." Yeah. You know, yeah. But and just so- in, yeah, in a similar way, like you were saying uh, with with Rome, it's like, well, 
it could be that people just like kind of bow down to it because it's like, I can't fight against it. So I might as well find what I can enjoy in it. Sure. Or it could be like, well, there's certain aspects about this that are really good for me. So I, you know, I realize that there's some corruption, Yeah. but there's really good aspects I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to support and I'll just kind of act like these bad things don't happen. Yeah. So I don't, I don't feel like that would kind of necessarily go against that. It's sure. Just, potentially. So yeah, the two main thing, the two main routes that most people go, and mm-hmm. I feel like commentators either mention both or kind of there's even yeah. there's evenness in terms of what got emphasized was mm-hmm. either just like trying to mainly emphasize the symbolism as a counterpart of Christ. Mm-hmm. I think everyone mm-hmm. agrees on that that, that yeah. much is there. Yeah. And then but a lot of people would also put emphasis on like the potential Nero background yeah, yeah, of yeah. like instability of the empire and it's recovered. There mm-hmm. was all this will relate to chapter 17 potentially as like another possible background to 17 because in 17 it talks about how the beast uh was not and then is like kind of this parallel language to God the Father as the right, one who, right. uh, who, what is the exact language? Who was, and who, who, is, who is, and who is to come. come. Yeah. There's kind of this parallel there, another parody in chapter yeah. 17 of the beast who, who was, was not, and then who is. Right, right. Kind of this idea of, again, resurrection theme going mm-hmm. on, which mm-hmm. is if it's playing off of 13, it's this idea of the empire surviving. Yeah. Um, there was, so not only is there Nero background of like him having died and then the empire you know, continuing on, but some argue that chapter 17 is playing off of this, um, idea that was in the culture that Nero didn't actually die. He had somehow escaped. Mm -hmm. He just like faked his death and he escaped to the outside the empire. And he Mm -hmm. was eventually going to come back and take the empire again for himself. Mm -hmm. So in chapter 17, it talks about how, um, one of the Kings, one of the seven heads, or the eighth king, who is a part of the seven, so they mm-hmm. would say like it's a it's a remanifestation of Nero, or it's Nero, or something like that. He's gonna come and he's gonna come back and destroy the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. which is what seventeen would be depicting. And that's that's a potential background. It's not that John is actually saying literally Nero is gonna come back, but he may just mm-hmm. be playing on the just like he does in the mm-hmm. just like he plays on Armageddon, and he's playing on like a geographical mm-hmm. location, and he's playing on different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Some connect the Nero potential Nero reference here with the Nero reference Mm -hmm. in chapter 17. The other piece too, is that some people would argue that the six, six, six in the next paragraph Mm -hmm. that that represents Nero. We'll get into that next week, but that's another option. So there are, there's sort of a network of potential kind of first century background Mm -hmm. things that John may be playing with. And I would just say though, as I studied it, it was like, yeah, I I could see that, but nothing in the passage hinges on Mm -hmm. it. The passages remain the same and the symbolism is nonetheless the same. Like the symbolism yeah. of a of a beast with incredible authority that's invincible. Even in chapter 17, the symbolism there kind of remains intact, even mm-hmm. if that background is not at play. Yeah, yeah it's a sort of, uh, we talked about this last week, but there's just like, there's some bent in us that wants to try to name everything. Yeah. And th- this is where, this is another example where if you get caught too much in the weeds, really trying to define what it is, you're gonna, you, you can actually get lost in the passage where... Regardless of who it is, I agree with what you're saying. Like you can understand his point. Yeah. Like you don't you don't have to define all these characters necessarily. And, and you have to you can go in two routes. You can either over you can either be like hyper looking for all these specific details, like this is talking about this, this is talking about that. Um and so you have to weigh, like, cause like the book will make can make illusions. And so it's like mm-hmm. you have to kind of figure out is it a strong enough illusion if there is there enough detail where you say, Yeah, I think that's likely that it's actually referring to this or it's referring to that. But you have to, um, I guess what I'm saying is you have to weigh those yeah, totally. to see how compelling they are. Because yeah. the book can do that. Like Absolutely. we should be open to that option, but we should also curtail any sort of hyper sense of like trying to identify everything and look yeah. at every little detail. Like yeah. that's not going to be helpful yeah. either. Especially when John goes out of his way to 
clearly defined things for us at times yeah. too. Um, you know, if I were preaching this passage, I had an illustration on this mortal head that seems to have died, yeah, but it keeps it. coming back. Go for um, it. And it happened just this past week. Uh, there's, and now this could be taken or heard the wrong way. So, I, oh boy. So just hear it as a fun illustration. But there's this McDonald's between our houses. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Did you see that they had another major fire? No, on the, they, ba- on the back side. Of the building. Yeah, see, right? it's like it's boarded up, and it's like <laughs> what you know, in the world. Somebody from our family is like, "Well, now McDonald's going to be gone." It's kind of like, "No, no it'll be back." It'll be back. <laughs> it seems to have because they didn't they remodel that yeah, McDonald's because it burned. Yeah, that's right. It was like it's, it's, it was really nice because it got remodeled. They're going to do it again. Yep. That's, so ho- yeah. I mean, hopefully nobody got hurt. Like, yeah, you know, right, like, right. But it's sort of like, yeah, you know, the Kill, McDonald's, uh, the McDonald's will. McDonald's it'll rise again. It'll you rise can't again. Get you rid kill of it. one of its heads. You kill one of its locations. <laughs> yeah, and it'll still be there. Yeah. So, so that idea. That's that's what John's going after. There, McDonald's is in Revelation after all. Yeah. <laughs> and so, as we think about um, maybe two other things, I would just mention briefly on this section is when we think about the beast. Um, you, we do get, as I mentioned before, we kind of get this contrast of the we're having a contrast of worshiping going on mm-hmm. in verse. For it talks about, you know, the people say, who is like the beast? He's invincible. And this that language does allude to uh, like Exodus, I'll pull it up, like Exodus 15, 11, mm-hmm. where the people worshiping God after the yeah. Exodus and Moses' song say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? This is yeah. a common refrain in the mm-hmm. Old Testament. Yeah. We got a parody going on. God is the only one that we should be saying, who yeah. is like you? And yet these people are saying is, who is like the beast? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is then at the end of 15, we're going to get what is called sort of this song of Moses and of the Lamb. So I was wondering, is, isn't that in the song of Moses? Yep. Who is like you? That's, what I, was, yep, that's what I was exactly yeah. alluding to is Exodus 15, the song of Moses. Yeah. Who is like you? And then that song yeah. shows up at 15 right, yeah. where we see, no, who yeah. is who is the one we really should be singing that about? Yeah. It's God and God alone, yeah. not the beast. So it's just a really interesting contrast, this battle over worship. Yeah. And so maybe one other thing I would say before we move on to the next section, I think one of the things I was trying to do in the sermon was to show how this how this passage about the beast, which represents the state, how this comes to bear in our own context. And I think one question that someone may have is like, well, how so we're thinking about our own context. We're thinking about for us, we're in the United States. Like, how is the beast? How is the United States a manifestation mm-hmm. of the beast? That does that seems weird, right? Because we're used, to, you know, the United States is a relatively speaking a very. There's a lot of good in the United mm-hmm. States, and we're very thankful for the United States and a lot of the peace that it brings and prosperity and freedoms and such. Um, and we can oftentimes think of the beast, especially if we're kind of been involved in certain kind of end time speculation circles. The beast is just this absolutely horrific thing mm-hmm. that would seem so distant from the United States. It's just this absolutely like it's we think of the beast as probably this totalitarian oppressive regime and all the it's like North Korea. Right. Mm-hmm. And certainly mm-hmm. like a place like North Korea would be a prime example mm-hmm. of a beastly state. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just like sort of much it's, more obvious. It's much more obvious. Right. But what's interesting is that in chapter 13, the beast in Revelation is talking about Rome. And we have to remember Rome was liked by a lot of, a lot of mm-hmm. people. Even in this text, the people are worshiping the beast. Mm-hmm. And so. If anything, the, actually the most appropriate examples of the beast would be countries where it's not only doing bad things that people might mm-hmm. identify, but it's also very much liked by mm-hmm. its people. It's actually worshipped mm-hmm. by its people. That There's something that's tempting mm-hmm. about the state they, for its They people. do things that make it appealing to 
for the citizens to give allegiance to the state. Yeah. So in, in some ways, in. North Korea yeah. is actually not the exact example that we mm-hmm. get in Revelation. It's mm-hmm. like it's almost like it's more extreme than mm-hmm. the Revelation 13 example mm-hmm. because it's so obviously bad. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. for the Romans, thir- or, sorry, I said Romans, the Revelation 13 mm-hmm. beast is more of this mixed state, mm-hmm. the one that has some bad stuff, but also some good mm-hmm. stuff mixed in that makes it even more devious. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, yeah. the United States is actually a pretty fitting example because yeah. there's a lot of good mm-hmm. mixed in with a lot of bad. Mm-hmm. I, th- I suppose somebody could argue, though, like the North Korea aspect or a, a regime like that. It's, yeah. it's the idea that so it's going to highlight a little bit more that it's persecuting the church. It's bringing abs- like it's killing. Yeah, that part like, is totally right? there. Yeah, And then and they the are worship, demanding your allegiance. Yeah, and the worship piece isn't necessarily like Oh, we love you, but we don't have it. Like all we can do is like we'll yeah. do the bare minimum, so we don't, so so it doesn't come on us. Yeah, and so people are giving their allegiance to the to the state, where um, it's like, oh, I could either worship Jesus or I could like give my allegiance to, to the state and I'll, and I'll give it to the state. So I don't get killed. And it doesn't yeah. mean like they worship in terms of liking them, but it's like, well, that's at least prevents me from being killed. Yep, sort yeah. of idea. So I. I you could probably do it that way as well. So yeah, I would say like both of them are. We, it's just it opens up the idea that we the category of beast is something that we can apply to both yeah. of those situations yeah. in yeah. different ways. Yeah. Basically, any country that exists prior to Jesus coming and bringing about His kingdom in full, I think, is going to be appropriately kind of mm-hmm. put under this category of beast. Yeah, I, I could see some people doing. having a little bit of hard time with you know with the U.S. being in a, in a sense if you're going to really highlight like and it was killing the saints. Yes. Yes. But. But under- I, I agree with you, but it's just like working that out. So it's not like we just want to like say it's only this type of regime or something like that. Yeah. It's, and that's a good question yeah. too. So like, and I tried to answer that a little bit in the sermon, but it's maybe worth highlighting here mm-hmm. is that the book of Revelation, it kind of just depicts every Christian as a martyr. Like right, if you're right, a Christian, right. you're going to be a martyr, right? right? But what part of what it's doing is it, it's utilizing it. Part of it is a symbolism. Yeah. It's, I don't think Revelation is assuming, yes, every Christian yeah. is going to die for their faith, but it's yeah. kind of saying in principle, on the base level, that's the trajectory we're all committed to yeah. should it be demanded of us. Yeah. So even in the United States, like I think especially now, it's becoming more obvious that the overall society is not super friendly with Christians. Right. Like we are becoming more marginalized. We are becoming – we are – we're – I mean I mean just now, I mean there was um, – I can think of examples where I've seen things on social media. It's 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 Pride Month right now, and you can find posts where people are celebrating Pride, mm-hmm. and it, it's mm-hmm. like it's like just kind of seen as like obvious. Who would disagree with mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. Like what on what kind of bigot would ever yeah. think that homosexuality is wrong? Like that's the society we live in. Mm-hmm. We're not. So in other words, it's not it's not out of left field to think that we live in a country yeah. Yeah. where you know, your Christianity is going to come at odds. You may yeah. not be dying for your faith, yeah. but sort of in principle, you're still in the position of someone who, you know, is committed to that overall trajectory of faithfulness no matter yeah. what. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's what the book is actually calling yeah. us to. It's a good point. And even in this, this one, you kind of, if you just read the first beast scenario, um, you kind of walk away thinking like, oh, everybody that doesn't worship the, the beast or give allegiance is killed. Well, the next one, they're the saints are still there, and it's not that they're killed, but they're they're yeah. not given food. Yeah, right. It's so, symbolism, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right, you want to read our next yeah. section for us, yeah. and this is on the activity of the beast. Actually, let me read it because then I'll I'll walk people through again. We have an A B A B structure, mm-hmm. and here we get um, again. There's he's authorized. That is that is one piece. The other piece uh, of the activity of the beast is that he utters blasphemy so first we get that he utters blasphemy here it's a little bit in reverse order 
um, than the description. And the beast in verse five was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. So he blasphemes B and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Okay, so he's given, he blasphemes, he's given authority. Then we go back to A again, where he's blaspheming. Verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And then we go back to B, the other subject of authorization. And authority was given over it, over every tribe, people, and language, and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. So again, we get this flip-flop between two things, blasphemy, authorized, blasphemy, authorized. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. leads, just like in the last section, this leads to then the beast being worshipped. Mm-hmm. Or for those who don't worship, he's going to war against you and conquer mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this, this section seems like it it's kind of paints the world in two pictures here, right? Yep. You, you either are those who worship the beast... Or you don't, and the determining factor is whether or not your name was written in the in the book of life. Right. Yeah. Right. It says that the people who the people who actually go after the beast are all those who didn't have their name yeah. written in the book of life. And so the idea is um, the believers are those who have their name written in the book yeah. of life. This book of life, again, as we've talked about before, it's symbolism of God having a record of those who are his. It says that this was from the foundation of the world. So this links up with doctrines of predestination mm-hmm. and election, God's mm-hmm. predetermined plan of those he's going to save. And it's the book of life. It's a book of people who are destined for life through the lamb who was slain. Their life is mm-hmm. accomplished on the basis of Jesus' sacrificial yeah. death. These all, these category, The category of having your name written or not written in the book of life would also be parallel to what he says about the beast is someone who blasphemes uh, God's dwelling, literally mm-hmm. God's mm-hmm. tabernacle. So mm-hmm. here again, mm-hmm. we see God's people are kind of like how the people of God in the book of Revelation are depicted as God's temple. Here they're depicted as his tabernacle, or it says um, there's a contrast between the heaven dwellers and the earth dwellers. And we've mm-hmm. seen that those who dwell on earth, this is sort of a technical term in Revelation for the people who, they have their identity in earth. Mm-hmm. Their citizenship mm-hmm. is on earth, we might say. Mm-hmm. They're the earth dwellers. These are yeah. unbelievers. And this is contrasted with the people whose citizenship is in heaven, the yeah. heaven dwellers. Which we talked about in an earlier podcast yeah. in the past. That's and so, the way the, the book uses those who are on earth. Yeah. It's and talking so about the unbelievers. Yeah. We could probably, we could probably just, we've covered a lot of ground so far, so we yeah. probably won't go too much into that. But really here we're seeing the beast blaspheming yeah. and attacking the people who, you got these divided camps, God's people versus the earth's people. The earth people, yeah. they worship the beast. God's people, the heaven people, the tabernacle people, they're killed by the beast. Yeah. Now this obviously is not a podcast on Calvinism or doctrines of grace, yeah. tulip, uh, but it is worth pointing out the, the way it's phrased here. Uh, so it's not that um, those who choose not to, to worship the beast, their names will be written. Like it's it's their behavior that determines whether or not their name's written in the book of life or not. Yeah, it's not that. It's flipped. Yeah. It's the opposite. It's, it's first, if their name is written in the book of life, they will not worship the beast. Right. And it's the d- determining factor of whether or not people worship the beast, whether, whether or not they cave is whether or not their name is written in the book of life. Yeah. Now, that, you know, it's, it's not here to debate, like, all this aspect, but it's to actually celebrate the fact that that, that is glorious. Like, this is this is uh, similar to Jesus to, to one of the churches. Like, I will keep you 
through the hour from the hour of tribulation. In other words, I will keep you in the faith. You will make it to the end because I will keep you. And this is another way of saying it. Um, the reason why some will not bow to the beast is because God has chosen to write them in the in the book of life, right. and that's glorious. Yeah, like this it, is it, uh, like we are we are sealed. Right. To the end, because of, of the, his grace. The beautiful things us. of this passage then is not mm-hmm. just like, hey, grit your teeth and persevere, yeah. but it's, hey, God is the one who's secured this. Yeah. We can even go to the, I think it's the book of life we might say is parallel to this idea of God sealing yeah. his people. That's right. Like, and that's what's going to fall in chapter yeah. 14. Rather than being marked by the beast, we are those who are sealed that's right. with the lamb. And so that's yeah. the that's the promise that stands behind this yeah. entire passage. Which is, I mean, as, as you look forward to the future, you know, and, and you start wondering like how how am i going to make it to the end and not and not like give my allegiance like especially as you you know as you continue to age and you see people that you thought were walking with jesus have have given they, they've gone away and right. they've, they've caved or whatever it is and you go like how like what makes me think i'm going to make it uh it's a it's a promise like this it, that's absolutely glorious like this is something that we don't want to like just debate and get all upset about like we want to say wow like let me rest in that like let yeah. me let me find my heart to rejoice and sing to God like, man, God, thank you for writing my name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And that like, that's why I'm going to be prevented from. Yeah, it's not. It's, a, it's included here so that we can find it's a doctrine that's meant right. to give us hope. Yeah. And the other, the other flip side of it is not only do we have the security, but even the fact that the beast is depicted as a beast. On the one hand, it's monstrous. Yeah. But on the other hand, a beast just means it's a creature. It's something yeah, under yeah, God's yeah. authority. Throughout yeah. the this section, there's this constant repetition that the beast was given. The beast was given. Yeah. The, beast, the beast doesn't have authority on its own. It has to be given authority right, right. either from the dragon yeah. or the implication also might be from God. It's only yeah. by God allowing the beast. It's mm-hmm. only on God's leash, in other words. Yeah, yeah. And then interestingly, uh, you know, 10 and, ten and beyond, uh, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Or verse this, 9 and beyond, you mean? Yeah, 9 and beyond. Um, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. It really just carries along this idea of, of like what is what God has declared to be, how it's going to unfold. That's how it's going to unfold. Gonna if your name was written in the book of life, you will not worship the beast. If God has declared you will be taken captive, you will be taken captive. If God has declared that you will be slain. Then you will be slain. Yeah. And this is an encouragement to the saints. This yes. is to say, like, presumably the ones being taken captive and slain are the saints here. Yeah. It's to say, right. hey, listen, God is in control of this. Yeah. This is what's going to happen. Yeah. He has control. You yeah. should expect this suffering as you are faithful. Yeah. And yeah. it's really this overall structure of this, too. Um, it, the same language used here for here is a call, like here's yeah. a call for the saints, is actually the same language that's then used at the end of the second right. section in chapter yeah. 18, which is this is the call for wisdom. Mm-hmm. How, like you need to you need to have mm-hmm. wisdom as you think about the mark of the beast. That's how the second section yeah. closes. This one closes by yeah. you need to have wisdom as you think about suffering. Yeah. yeah. So the call for patient endurance in the faith of the saints then is is the fact that yes, yes, the, the beast is going to war against you, but... God is in control of this. Yeah. Like he's the one that wrote your name in the book of life. Uh, you will not cave to him or to the beast. You will remain in Christ. Uh, if if you go into captivity, it's not that God's sleeping. Yeah, it's, it's not, not out of his control. It's, it's no, in his it's, control. It's right. It's right in his plan. And by the time we get to 14, what's happening? 144,000 worshiping with the lamb and are safe. Yeah. So it might be hard on this pilgrimage, but one day. And I'll say one quick comment. There are some translations that say 
instead of saying if anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain, yeah. some translations say if anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he will be slain. And so there mm. it's kind of playing off of, this would be like the King James or the New King James or some other translations. So if you had that in your Bible, mm. that may have been a little bit confusing. Um, but the, if that was the proper reading, there's, there's kind of a difference in some of the Greek manuscripts, then the idea I suppose would be like, listen, don't fight back. If you're gonna kill with a sword, you're gonna. If you're gonna kill oh, with a yeah, sword, yeah. you're gonna be killed with a yeah. sword. The way of Jesus is not to fight back. It's to be like a lamb who is slain. It's to be right, the two right. witnesses who suffer. And so the way of Jesus is not fighting back, but it's to yield to. It's to lay down your rights and to suffer on behalf of, it, gotcha. of the gospel. So a little bit of different nuance, but it would still get a, a similar same idea. Same idea. Yeah, and I think similar, what the nuance. ESV has, the translation we read, is the more accurate yeah, one. Yeah. But there is some difference there. Yeah. So. All right, so Dan had to leave, and so I'll be closing out the rest of this podcast on my own here. And I just wanted to kind of close by, you know, maybe thinking through some of the big picture application questions. Um, First, in the sermon, I argued that Jesus's kingdom and authority actually does have implications and is its aimed and its bearings are related to this earth and even sort of the political and state entities that exist today. and so, because that, that could kind of raise, the passage could raise a question, you know, the passage is concerned about people giving ultimate loyalty to the beast, worshiping the beast, the state that is. Um, but someone could ask, well, what is, what's the big deal? Because Jesus is, his kingdom is sort of this spiritual thing, right? It's, it's, it's the domain of sort of spiritualities, whereas the kingdoms of this world, their domain is sort of these earthly realities. And so why are those two seen as that in conflict? They can kind of coexist because they're, Jesus's, you know, kingship is over something not related to those things. And I would say that's based on a misunderstanding. Um, we should understand that Jesus's, as I argued, that Jesus's lordship, it's not just some metaphor. It's not just some figure of speech when we say Jesus is king, but he really is the king over. He's the king of kings. He's the ruler of the kings on earth, as Revelation 1 says. He really does have authority over all things, all kingdoms, all kings, all politics, all governments, you name it. Um, you know, but what about passages, for example, like where Jesus in the Gospels, he says, uh, you know, he refers to the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think a lot of people, they hear that and they assume, well, that's talking about heaven. It's the kingdom that is heaven. It's the kingdom that's in heaven. Like we're going to go to heaven someday when we die. And that's the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Um, or when Jesus says in, when he's being tried by Pilate, he says in John 18, 36, that my kingdom is not of this world. Doesn't that suggest that Jesus' kingdom is not related to this world? Or Philippians 3, 20, where it says our citizenship is in heaven. Doesn't that mean that, you know, our, we're talking about when we're talking about our citizenship to God, it's talking about something in heaven, not related to earth. Well, these are based off of misunderstandings. First of all, kingdom of heaven isn't sort of saying the kingdom itself is heaven, but it's the it's the heavenly kingdom. It's the kingdom that has its origins from heaven. It's God's kingdom. And the parallel phrase is the kingdom of God. Um, but Jesus is saying that this kingdom is in breaking into this world. He says this kingdom is at hand. He's not suggesting it's a kingdom in some other domain, some other place. It's the heavenly kingdom breaking into this world's kingdom to actually push back at those kingdoms and overtake them. Or when Jesus says, um, my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying that my kingdom is uh, belongs to some other domain, some other sphere, something unrelated to this world. 
What he's saying is that my kingdom is not like the ones of this world. He follows it up by saying, if my kingdom was of this world, my people would fight. In other words, that's how kingdoms of this world come in. They, they fight for power. They overtake through, through coercion and sword. Jesus is saying, my kingdom isn't like that. Mine is. In that sense, Jesus' kingdom is spiritual. He said earlier in the Gospel of John that no one can see his, this kingdom of God unless they're born again. It's something that we are entered into by regeneration and being made new people. It's a new creation kingdom. Um, and yet it also is one that very much has to do with this world. It's a new creation that is going to happen to this world. This world will be recreated. Um, and so Jesus isn't saying there that his kingdom has nothing to do with this world. He's saying that my kingdom is not, it's a kingdom that's not like the ones of this world. It's not like these earthly kingdoms. Or like in Philippians 3.20, when Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, um, like for example, these Philippian people, a lot of them that he's writing to, they would have been citizens of Rome, and yet they lived in Philippi. Um, the idea here isn't that, oh, you have a citizenship that's you know totally unrelated to this world. They were citizens of Rome even as they lived in Philippi. Um, and so likewise, we are citizens of heaven in this world. It has a, it has a real earthly um, ramification and meaning to it. It's not your home is in heaven, but your loyalty is to heaven, even as you live that loyalty out in this world. And so part of that is based off a of misunderstanding. Even as we said in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7, which are alluded to in Revelation, and Daniel 7 is alluded to in this specific passage in Revelation, we have a promise that Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man, is actually going to overtake the kingdoms of this world. In other words, it's not some kingdom totally unrelated to them that they just kind of continue and coexist. No, Jesus is said to, his kingdom is actually going to overtake those kingdoms. That's a very political, that's going to have political meaning. Those kingdoms are going to stop and Jesus' kingdom is going to overtake them. When we say Jesus is Lord, he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords and he's the ruler on the kings of earth, we, we mean that very literally. Like, all other governments, all nations, all kings, all politicians, political parties only ought to exist in subordination to his lordship over them, his kingship over them. And if they try to do their own thing, they are effectively rebelling against the kingship of Christ. But I, I suppose that might raise the question for some, well, how or what does it look like then as those living with our ultimate loyalty to Christ, what does it look like then to live with loyalty to the state? Are we not supposed to give loyalty to the state? Is that what this passage is arguing? It's sort of a one or the other. And I would say, well, no, not necessarily. Um, we ought not to give ultimate loyalty to the state. We ought not to pledge allegiance to the state in terms of giving it our ultimate allegiance. To give anything full, unqualified, unquestioned, um, Allegiance to anything other than Christ and God is idolatry. It's to put something at the level of Christ and God or above Christ and God. And nothing, so we don't give, we don't pledge our allegiance to the nation in an absolute sense. Any sense in which we show our loyalty to the nation, um, and we are giving the nation our allegiance is always relative. There, there is always a, I'm, I'm loyal and I'm, and I give you my allegiance, but, um, I obey God rather than men push come to shove. And so that's how we have to think through this. It's they're not ne not necessarily our, our is the state the call of the state for us to be good citizens. Not always is that going to be in conflict with, with what God would have, but it is potentially at conflict. And so we always want to kind of be circumspect and be aware of that. We want to avoid becoming intoxicated with sort of a, a civic religion and a, and, a, and a celebration of the state so much so that we lose our discernment and potentially 
acquiescing and going along with things that the state would have us go along with where they may be in conflict with Christ and his values and his kingdom. So then how do we practice this sort of apocalyptic outlook? As we talk, I talked about in the, in, the, in the sermon, kind of having an apocalyptic outlook, kind of like Frederick Douglass, where we're able to see past appearances and see through to the true spiritual reality of the things in this world. We kind of have an x-ray vision where we can see past the surface into the actual substance of things, where we see the state not merely as a state, but as a beast, for example. How do we practice that sort of apocalyptic, that, that exposing, that unveiling outlook. Well, I think, again, we have to view the state as both a minister and a monster, as I argued. You have, we have Romans 13 in our Bible where the state is viewed as a minister. It's viewed positively as this good thing that God gives us. The government is not a bad thing. Um, it's not an inherently bad institution. Jesus is going to come and bring about his government. Um, and so if government was bad, obviously Jesus wouldn't be governing himself. Um, it's not inherently bad. It can be bad. And in this world, governments always are tainted with badness, but it's not inherently bad. And as God designed it, as God instituted, instituted government, as Romans 13 says, the government is intended to be a servant of God or a minister of God. Um, even in Britain, they, like some countries, they'll refer to their secret, we would say secretaries, we're a much more secularly designed state in that way. We say secretary of state and things like that. Other countries that have a little bit more of an overt religious flavor to how their government was organized, they'll say like the minister of justice or the ministry of this, that, and the other. Um, they're reflecting that Romans 13 idea when they do that. And so on the one hand, we do view the state as a minister. We want to view, we don't want to have a disparaging view of government, an absolutely disparaging view. We want to say, no, we want to, Romans 13 is in our Bible. God gave us government for good. It's an expression of his common grace. And so some of us can err by, you know, having an overly negative view of government. Um, we can always think of the government as this, this absolutely horrible, like a necessary evil, like this horrible thing. On the other hand, we can also fall into the error of having an overly positive view of government. We can become infatuated with some of the patriotic fervor in our culture that could potentially blind us and leave us less discerning than we should be. And we need to remember on that hand um, that Revelation 13 is in our Bible. And so we need to live with this dynamic of both understanding Revelation 13 and Romans 13. Both of those are true descriptions of the state, and they're both in our Bibles. And we need both of them. If we just had one and not the other, we'd be missing something in our theology and in our understanding of the state. The state is both a minister and a monster, and we need to be people who are circumspect and discerning as we look at our own country, as we practice an apocalyptic perspective on our own country and try to understand what is actually going on to see through to the true realities. And I think, again, it's helpful that we are aware to this because if we're not, we can fall prey to bad practices and false ideas. The more we're aware of the stakes that are at play um, behind the scenes, the more we are aware of what's at stake as we live the Christian life in our own context. All right, so that wraps us up for today. Next week, we will be getting into chapter 13, 11 through 18, the second beast, aka the false prophet. And as always, if you have any questions or things you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, go ahead and reach out to either Dan or myself, and we'd be glad to include it. Until then. Music.